We're in the season of Epiphany, when the light dawns on the world. So as we move from the shortest and darkest day of the year, the liturgical season invites us into a spiritual quest to look for the light all around us and the light within us. So the logic of the liturgical calendar flows this way. It begins with the advent of Jesus, the preparation for his coming, and then his arrival at Christmas, and then it's followed by his appearance and epiphany to the Magi, which was celebrated technically last week, and then the movement to follow this light of the world all the way to the bright dawn of Easter morning resurrection. So that gets us through the first part of the year, and then after that is called ordinary time and it's just the stories of Jesus and we learn the way of Jesus in this ordinary time. So we're in this season of light right now and we're going to try to follow this movement from spiritual darkness to some personal enlightenment by asking some questions of our epiphany texts each week. How might we cultivate a curious life? one that leads us to care about and to pursue more important things. One of our preacher camp colleagues, Dr. Jim Somerville, who's the pastor at First Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, he takes his preaching tasks task very seriously, not that the rest of us don't, but he has a PhD in New Testament and reads straight from the Greek Bible, and I do not do that since my Greek exam. I just look to others like Jim to do it for me. But he takes, he's a very avid student, and he spends a lot of time in exegetical study each week, analyzing the Greek that he learned. And he says that he begins his preparation for each sermon by reading the text multiple times and then asking 20 questions of the text. 20 questions as he reads it. Now, you can imagine that would lend itself to 20 sermons, probably. But this is just an interesting discipline, one that we might learn from in this um, cultivating a curious life during Epiphany. Perhaps you might want to take your bulletin home each week and look at the text that we talk about today and ask your own 20 questions of it. We came up with 20 questions. I'm not going to read all 20 of them to you. But after I read the text to you, I will read you some of the questions that came to our minds. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
And when Jesus turned and saw that they were following him, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him for that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So John says, I myself did not know him. How do, you, how do we introduce someone we do not know? That descending dove, it says, remained on him. That's a curious detail. Can the spirit descend but not remain on someone? What are you looking for? It's the Jesus question that's the biggest of all. And why four o'clock in the afternoon? A lot of details in this story, but why four o'clock? Andrew found his brother Simon and told him about his encounter with Jesus. But spiritually, spirituality is something difficult to share with family. How open am I to sharing my faith journey with my own family? Jesus renames Simon what kind of power is there in getting a new name? And if Jesus were to encounter me, would he give me a new name? And what would it be and what would it mean? But Jesus asks, what are you looking for? And they respond, um, where do you live? Where are you staying? Seems like such an odd thing to ask. And then he says, well, come and see. Well, if you're going to give all the detail all the way to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, could you describe for me where he's staying? Is it an upstairs apartment, a garage, loft? Is it an extra room? Does he have a house of his own? How nice is it? How is it furnished? How many nights does he stay there at a time? How often does he move around? Does he have a place that he really calls home? Are you curious about Jesus? You've heard the ancient story. As I read today's text and as we read it together, two questions should stand out to us. Amy has called these out, pointed them out. Jesus asked these first disciples, what are you looking for? What a question. And they reply, where are you staying? What are you looking for? Where are you staying? There's more than one way to read any scripture. And if we stop with the literal words, we will miss most of what we can learn from it. So there's more to these questions than their face value. But let's begin there. The disciples asked Jesus where he was staying. Where did Jesus live? Where was Jesus' home? What do we know about that? Hearing these words this week as I read them over and over, they took me back to my hometown when I was a child. And growing up, they reminded me of my black friends whose language differed from mine. I would have asked, are you in the choir? But they would say, I sing on the choir. You ever heard that? 
They would say, I sing on the choir. And I would ask, where do you live? But they would say, I stay at Gary Street. Sometimes to the dismay of all good grammarians, they would ask, where do you stay at? Where do you stay? Where did Jesus stay at? Where was his home? Luke's Christmas gospel says, In those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And Joseph also went up out of the city of Nazareth unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth, right? Well, not so fast. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in our Bible study on Tuesday morning. Very interesting stuff. The birth story in the Gospel of Matthew just says in the time of King Herod after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now it's easy to superimpose Luke's story on top of this one, but to do so we have to assume that Matthew is just assuming Caesar's uh, taxation and the donkey ride from Galilee, all of Luke's details. Scholars tell us not to make those assumptions. Because there are complicated issues of interpretation involved, the experts ask us to let each story stand on its own and to understand that because a gospel is a theological narrative, not a biography, so-called historical facts are not the overriding concern of any of the biblical authors. Luke has his own theological angle, but Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, refers to Bethlehem as the home of Jesus by quoting the prophet Micah. And this supports Matthew's belief that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Micah had said, You, Bethlehem, are by no means least, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Matthew then tells us of Herod's slaughter of the infant males, and he explains the Holy Family's immigration to Egypt by quoting the prophet Hosea, who said this was to fulfill what had been spoken, out of Egypt I have called my son. And only after the immigrant family returns from Egypt does Matthew then introduce us to Nazareth. And he does so with another supposed proof from Scripture, Matthew says, when Herod died, an angel appeared to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and go to Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was ruling in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid. So Joseph made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken might be fulfilled. He was called a Nazarene. Now this third appeal of Matthew to prophecy is curious because that word, that that sentence, he will be called a Nazarene, is not a known quotation from any source that scholars have uncovered. Scholars disagree on what the word Nazarene means, but they agree that it does not mean someone from Nazareth. Again, if we read at face value, Matthew seems to be introducing the town of Nazareth heretofore unknown. He doesn't say Joseph returned to his hometown. He says he made his home in a town called Nazareth, as if introducing Nazareth for the first time. Now, I said to our Bible study group a couple weeks ago, don't let any of this concern you. 
as I have told you many times, I'm not trying to take your story away from you. I do want you to be aware of the scholarship and how scholars read and study the Bible, what they say about it. And when you think about it, this makes sense. We live with a full theological interpretation of Jesus, a full picture that's been told for 2,000 years. We've wrapped it all together in a nice, neat, tidy package. But no one understood that. No one understood what we understand about Jesus when he was alive. The Bible repeatedly tells us that, that not even the disciples understood. Not even the disciples understood. It was only after Jesus died that they started trying to piece together a story, a theology, beliefs and doctrines about him. Only then did they start asking some of the questions, the answers of which we just assumed. Some had identified Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Some said he was sinless. Others called him Son of God. Stories gathered about his powerful teaching, the miracles he had performed. These stories grew in a mostly illiterate culture. No newspapers, no recording devices. So the stories grew. And the first gospel was not written for 40 years after his death. A full generation. Many people didn't live 40 years back in the first century. So these stories had been told for an entire lifetime before anyone ever tried to write them down. So in the years following his death, but before the Gospels, and long before anybody thought about anything like a Christian theology textbook, when somebody said, so where was Jesus from, meaning what can that tell us about him? Well, you can understand that there may have been different answers floating about. Don't let it bother you that Matthew seems to say Bethlehem and Luke seems to say Nazareth. The Gospel of Mark and John don't even address the question. Matthew later says, uh, after Jesus' ministry began, that he made his home in Capernaum by the lake. So going back to the original question that I have paraphrased by my friends from home, where do you stay? We could answer Bethlehem or Nazareth or Egypt or Capernaum. And for much of Jesus' ministry, he was a kind of vagabond. As Matthew also tells us, a scribe said to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus, where do you stay? It's an intriguing question. The location of Jesus' actual home is probably not all that important, and that's not really the question that they were asking him that day. It's not at all the question for us today. The question is, Jesus, where are you staying? Where is your heart? And where can I find you? How can we be together? Can I come over? Can we spend some time? Can I talk and listen? One thing that's clear from the story of Jesus is that wherever he was, wherever Jesus was staying, his table was open. Always. All were welcome to whatever place he was calling home at the moment. 
So they asked him where he was staying, and though the gospel does not give us an address, John does say they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. As was always the case, Jesus took them home, and they sat together for a day. In the intimacy of this context, as he always does, Jesus answers a good question with an even better one, what are you looking for? Park Road Baptist Church, let me ask you today, what are you looking for? As a community of faith, what are we looking for? As we start on another 365 days, what are we looking for? Where, in a matter of speaking, are we staying as a congregation? Where are our hearts at home? Now, at this point in the story, and Amy pointed this out, John says, just kind of -of matter-of-factly, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I find that an extremely odd detail. 4 o'clock. What does that mean? What does it matter? that it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The numbers 3 and 7 have significant biblical significance throughout the story, uh, the stories of the Bible, I mean. But there's nothing symbolic about 4 that I'm aware of. And since I have no idea why John would include such a detail, I want to turn today to Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett for a little help. The first verse of their clever country song that hit number one in 2003 tells the whole story. The sun is hot and that old clock is moving slow, and so am I. Workday passes like molasses in wintertime, but it's July. I'm getting paid by the hour and older by the minute. My boss just pushed me over the limit. I'd like to call him something. I think I'll just call it a day. And the chorus has become a drinking anthem the world over. You could probably sing it with me. So pour me something tall and strong, call it a hurricane before I go insane. It's only half past 12, but I don't care. It's five o'clock somewhere. Words you never thought you'd hear from a Baptist pulpit, right? Before he died, Joel Froiler, I told Joel Froiler that I had never tasted beer. Joel was appalled. He was aghast. He was astounded. And he would probably doubt be he would probably be downright ashamed to know a decade later that I have still not found a reason to have my first beer. When I told Joel this years ago, he just about yelled at me in the fellowship hall, you haven't found a good reason to have a beer? Everything's a good reason to have a beer, Russ. And so it is for a lot of folks. It doesn't matter the reason, and it doesn't matter the time. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. I don't know where you are in your own personal spiritual journey. I do not know what good questions you need to ask, what commitments you want to take this year, what changes you might need to make. I don't know where you are staying at the moment, but I know that the Jesus who changed the world so long ago 
the way of Jesus that challenges systems and empires, the love of Jesus that transforms hearts, that Jesus is just as available today as he was so long ago. In other words, if you need to make a change, take on a commitment, change your mind, open your heart, now is the time. It's four o'clock somewhere. May it be so. Amen. On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I decided for our prayer of intercession to just pray one of the prayers that he prayed. You know, they're just words here on the paper, but how you present words really matters. I would give anything to have his rhythm, his inflection, his power in his voice to read these words. So I'm not even going to try to imitate. I'm just going to take his words and make them my own words. And maybe as you hear these words that are a prayer, recognizing that all these years later, we're still praying for the exact same thing he was praying for. So in my voice, in his words, may this be our prayer. Most gracious and all-wise God, before whose face the generations rise and fall, thou in whom we live and move and have our being, we thank thee all of thy good and gracious gifts for life and for health, for food and for raiment, for the beauties of nature and the love of human nature. We come before thee painfully aware of our inadequacies and shortcomings. We realize that we stand surrounded with the mountains of love and we deliberately dwell in the valley of hate. We stand amid the forces of truth and deliberately lie. We are forever offered the high road and yet we choose to travel the low road. For these sins, O oh God, forgive. Break the spell of that which blinds our minds. Purify our hearts that we may see thee. O God, in these turbulent days, when fear and doubt are mounting high, give us broad visions, penetrating eyes, and power of endurance. Help us to work with renewed vigor in a warless world for a better distribution of wealth, and for a humanity that transcends race and color. In the name and spirit of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.